We've been meeting here at Pinheads for 10 years. And that's about 500 messages. And out of those messages, we've rarely done topical. You know, uh, we've basically taken the scripture and worked our way through the Bible and uh, we haven't made our way through the Bible. This is our, actually our second time through the Gospels. Um, but I've never touched Revelation. And there's a reason for that. It's because I can tell you one thing. Jesus is coming back. That's about all I can tell you. Um, I've done the seminary thing. I've done the studying thing. There's so many different theories and guesses and you can take the scripture and you can make it say one thing and make it say another thing. But the truth is, is we don't know what the end is going to be like. I just know that Jesus is coming back. And that's a good thing. Now, in saying that, Jesus speaks about the end time is because... As you know, last week his disciples says in Mark that Peter, James, and Andrew, I believe it was Andrew, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him these three questions. They said, tell us, when will these things happen? That was the first question. The second question was, and what is the sign of your coming? What is the sign of your coming? And the third question was, and of the end of the age. Tell us about the end of the age. What's, what's that look like? Well, Jesus took the, fir- the third question and he answered it first, and that's what we did last week. And then he answered the first question. We did that last week. The third question being, what's the, the end of the age? We talked, uh, I, I tried not... I, I tried not to scare you, but he talked about world wars that were going to happen. And we briefly described the world wars that have already occurred starting back in 1914 and continued with the World War 19, World War II in 1939. Uh, it was a continuation of, really, World War I. And then he answered the first question, the first question being that, tell us when will these things happen And he talked about specifically the Roman-Jewish conflict that happened around 63 to 70 A.D. all the way up to 73 uh, uh, A.D. And uh, we talked about that, and of course uh, someone, someone questioned me about that. It was Finn, and I don't know where he is today. Uh... But the dude was actually reading a church history book. I'm like, you guys are weird. Thought I was the only one that read that stuff. Uh, but the idea that when Jesus said, look, you need to like pick up and leave when all this stuff happens around 66 AD and the believers in Jesus, the followers of Jesus actually got up from Jerusalem and left when this thing went down in 66, 68 AD, they got up and left. Eusebius says that they went to the area called Pella, which is just on the east side of the Jordan River, in the Jordan area. It's a very wilderness, desert-like land. Yet, 
Josephus talks about a group that went to Masada, which was down in the Dead Sea area, and uh, they went on a place high up on Masada that King Herod had built, and they held off the Romans until about 73 A.D. And we've always tossed out this idea that no Hebrew Christian was killed during that Roman-Jewish conflict that happened around 68 A.D. Well, of course, eventually they all had to die. But at Masada, I don't know if you know the case there, Masada was this, this place way up, and we'll be there next week. We'll be there at Masada. You have to ride a cable car to get up there. But the Roman soldiers built this dirt hill. It took like nine months to build it, but they finally got up to where all the 960 Jews were hiding out. And the Jews were so full of pride that uh, they decided to take their own lives and not die at the hands of the Romans. So they never did die by the Romans. They just killed themselves. There were only two females, two mothers, and five children that survived. They had hid in the caverns there of Masada. And they were able to come out and tell the story to Josephus. So there's two trains of thought where these Hebrew Christians went. It's uh, still highly debated and talked about. But that was the first question that Jesus answered. And then we get to the, the middle question, the second question, and that's where we are today. And that second question <clears throat> is, can be kind of tricky. All right? What is the sign of your coming? The disciples asked Jesus. Now, Matt was standing here. Uh, there's others in the room, Jeannie, and I always say this, Matt and Jeannie, those are the two that we have these discussions with about end times. But we all kind of translate and see these scriptures different. How does the end times come? And I'm going to try to give you what uh, most theologians agree on. All right? But this is only to encourage you and to plant inside of you a passion, maybe even to go dig deeper. I'll put all my notes on leavener.com. It's got all the passages of Scripture. They're there every week. If you go to the community of believers, go to teachings, we eventually get them on there. It's up to date right now. But you can go and just click on the verses and see all the verses uh, that will fly through here real quick. But let me explain to you the most accepted theory of the end times. First of all, they talk about uh, the rapture of the church, that there's going to be a rapture of the church. It's never, ever quoted in the Bible that there is a rapture. The rapture meaning that all the believers, that would be you in this room that believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and came here and died on a cross and died for your sins, and you believe that he is the Messiah, all you believers will be taken out at the rapture. Now, the reason that's there is because there is really 
uh, as you go through the end times and read about the tribulation that happens, it doesn't talk about uh, the Spirit being there and the church being there. That comes out of 1 Thessalonians. So at some point, this rapture is going to occur, and we have no idea when that's going to happen. You know what blows me away? If this actually does happen, a rapture actually occurs, is that there are going to be people that explain it away. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, literally, they will explain what happened to everybody. Yet, they'll never never say that it's the Father, that Jesus did it, that it's the Christians that are gone. They'll just come up with some fancy explanation of why everybody just disappeared if the rapture happens. The second thing is that there will be a leader of ten European nations that make a seven-year agreement with Israel. You can find that in Daniel chapter 9. Nine years ago, we went through all 12 books of Daniel. You can go back. I believe, I believe we still have the podcast from that somewhere. But you can go back and you, as we broke down Daniel and explained all the end time, the numbers, the 490 weeks and everything else. It's, it's very complicated. I don't have time to explain it all this morning. Third, after three and a half years, uh, the agreement is broken. That's in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. The Antichrist at this point will move to Jerusalem and set up his image in the temple. This is Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, and also in Revelation chapter 13. Fifth thing, the Antichrist begins to control the world and forces all people to worship and to obey him. At this time, God sends great tribulation upon the earth. There's a seven-year tribulation. I think the, the first three and a half years would actually be kind of cool. be awesome to... Because th- th- this is when the church, the, the, the people realize, hey, something is happening here, something different here. Uh, there's an agreement with Israel. It's all lining up. But then halfway through this point, the Antichrist appears and it, it just gets obviously demonic at that point. And then everybody's running for their lives. That second three and a half years, I, I wouldn't want to be around. I wouldn't I won't be around. And so what he'll do is the Antichrist will pursue the Jews once again and try to destroy them. Why is that? Because as Jesus proclaims here in Matthew twenty four, he says there will be a remnant of Jews that come to know him as the Messiah, and that's when you know that he's coming back. When this remnant of Jews is coming back. So therefore, if the Antichrist can wipe out the Jews, they can't call him back. And so those last three and a half years of the tribulation, I imagine, will be pretty bleak. And then the sixth thing is the nations gather at Armageddon. Again, we'll be standing there next week overlooking the area of Armageddon. And they will be there to fight the Antichrist and Israel 
but they see the sign of Christ coming and they unite to fight the Antichrist. And then the last thing is Jesus returns to the earth, defeats his enemies, and is received by the Jews and establishes his kingdom here on earth. That's in Revelation 19 and Zechariah 12. He'll reign on earth for a thousand years. Revelation 20. Now, go study it, go read it, go figure it out. But some will believe that the tribulation has already occurred and it was during that Jewish-Roman war and when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., that that was the end. And now that Jesus is actually reigning here a thousand years. Now, uh, you, you obviously can contest either theory, either thought pattern. There's no question about it. I have a tendency to believe that the tribulation is yet to come and that the thousand-year reign of Christ uh, is yet to come. So let's look now in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, where we left off last week, verse 15. It says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Let me take you back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Jesus says, he's really talking about what Daniel has already prophesied hundreds of years before. It says, From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. If you take 1,290 and divide it by 365, which is how many days there are in a year, you know what you get? Three and a half years. 1,290 days is three and a half years. At three and a half years, Daniel prophesied that there will be an abomination that takes place at the temple. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. That would be the Antichrist. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. At three and a half years, the Antichrist will sit at the temple. Now, uh, when we go over there next week and we actually go up on the Temple Mount, uh, there is no temple. There's the, the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim worship center at this point. So what does that tell you? If the Antichrist is going to sit at the, in the temple on the throne at three and a half years, what has to be done? The temple has to be rebuilt. At some point, the temple has to be rebuilt. And you know, the crazy thing is, is there is a center over there where they have already created all the artifacts that go into the temple. Like it's sitting in a, in a center right now waiting for that temple to be built and ready to go in the moment that temple is built. We don't know when that temple will be built, but the Jews will be able to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. Who knows what that will look like? Verse 16, it says, Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. This already has happened now we know history that Jesus says this before it actually happened in 68 uh, A.D. 
when the Jews fled, when the Romans came in. But we believe that it will happen again. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. It's talking about a tribulation that's going to occur and it's going to be bad. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you then, see here is the Messiah or over here, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. Jesus is sitting there telling his disciples. I have told you in advance. So if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, the vultures will gather. He's told the Jews at some point there's going to be a tribulation and you're going to have to escape to the wilderness. Based upon what we read in Scripture and all the verses, this is an area called Petra that is on the west side of the Jordan River. When he's talking about... uh, Whenever the wherever the carcass is, that's the Jewish nation that is talking about. The vultures will gather, and he's talking about the Gentiles that will surround this remnant of Jews. Again, you're not going to be there. And then verse 29, it says, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the son of the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. What's that look like? You know, that's been here already, right? The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. This is what we call Shekinah glory. It's the same glory that when... Moses was up on Mount Sinai and there was a burning bush. The burning bush was not consumed. And the reason it wasn't consumed is because it was the glory of God that Moses was looking at. And then the Israelites were at the bottom of Mount Sinai when God appeared in a cloud to them. And then they took this tabernacle and they, wherever they went in the wilderness, they would build this tabernacle and the tabernacle would be filled with the glory of god so much that they couldn't even get into the tabernacle and then as they traveled this glory of god was the same glory of god that would lead them by fire at night and clouds by day and then all of a sudden this glory of god vanished for like 600 years until luke chapter 2 came along then luke chapter 2 came along Christ the Savior was born and the angels said, look, the glory of God is, be, is among us. The glory of God, the same glory that was with Moses in the burning bush, the same one that led them 
out of Egypt, the same one that led them through the wilderness, the same one is now in Christ. And church, it is the same glory that lives in you. Really? That same, that same glory that we've just read throughout, that I just quickly took you through the scriptures, is the same glory that lives in you. When I, when I look at you right here, I literally see the glory of God. It's a beautiful thing. And that is the sign that they will see in the cloud. The Son of Man is returning. And then all the people of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet. And they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, here's what you need to know. At at lunch Wednesday, uh, we get a lunch with the guys on Wednesday, we stuck around afterwards and somebody brought up the question, how many covenants are there? How many covenants are there in the scripture? And there's seven covenants that we know about. Four of them are unconditional and three of them are conditional. Let me remind you about these four unconditional covenants because uh, I think it is important for us to know as we talk about the what is yet to unfold. The first covenant, I, unconditional covenant that I'll share with you is the Abrahamic covenant. This actually took place in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. And, and God promised Abraham, he said, Abraham, uh, because of your belief in me and your love for me, you will have many descendants, Genesis chapter 12. And then in Genesis chapter 15, he says, because of your belief in me and your love for me, you will someday possess this land all the way from the Euphrates River to the river of Egypt. This will be your land. Guess what? That is yet to occur. Now, if God's a God of promises, God made a covenant with Abraham, I believe that it has to occur. That it will occur in the future. And then uh, the next covenant we have is the Palestinian covenant. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Palestinian covenant comes actually out of Deuteronomy 30 verse 1. It says, when all these things happen to you, the blessings and curses I have set before you is talking to the Jewish people. And you come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And you and your children return to the Lord and your God obey him with all your heart and all your soul by doing everything I am commanding you today. Then he will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your exiles are at the farthest horizon, he will gather you and bring you back from there. The Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants. And you will love him with all your heart and all your soul that you will live. Now, this is to the Jews again. And this is 
an unconditional covenant. God is saying, you realize what the difference between uh, unconditional and conditional. Conditional is, you do this, I do this. Unconditional is, I do this. This is an unconditional covenant that God has made with them. And he says, look, when all this happens, when it all is said and done, I'll gather you all up from all over. And which Jews is he talking about? He says, I will circumcise your heart. Is your heart circumcised? Has your heart been circumcised? Yes, it is because you're a believer. Talk about the heart in Jeremiah. Your old stone heart has been taken out. And because of your belief in Jesus, he's replaced it, that heart that Ezekiel talks about. He's replaced it with a heart of flesh. Your heart has been circumcised. So therefore, the Jews that believe that Jesus is the Messiah will all be gathered back up into Israel someday. That has yet to occur. Another covenant, unconditional covenant that has yet to occur. Then the third covenant that he speaks about is the Davidic covenant. This is uh, mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he has said to King David, he said, I promise you an eternal throne and an eternal kingdom. In other words, the Messiah is going to come through you and your lineage, David. And just as we talked a few weeks ago when Jesus came into town for the Passover, people began to yell and scream, Son of David, Son of David. That the Messiah will come through David. And then the fourth covenant, obviously, is the new covenant. This is an unconditional covenant. The new covenant is an unconditional covenant. And I look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31. It says this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This, my friends, is the new covenant that you and I are able to partake in. This is also significant to the Jews because it's saying to them, Look, you've been taught by the old covenant. Here's the law. This is what you must do to obey it and to show that you love the Lord. Do these things. Do, do, do. Don't do, don't do, don't do. There's laws. And now all of a sudden, God has changed the whole thing with this new covenant. He says, look, I'm going to put my law on your heart. And you're not going to need these Ten Commandments mounted at your government buildings for everybody to see. Because it's going to be on your heart. And you're going to know exactly what to do because the Spirit's going to be living inside of you and He's going to tell you how to live your life. All you have to do 
is choose to walk by the Spirit rather than by your flesh. In fact, I'll even live your life for you if you let me. But if you choose to do it on your own, you'll be walking in the flesh and good luck with that. That's what the whole covenant was about. Now we're talking about a new covenant. And I say all that to say there's still covenants that have to be fulfilled for God to keep his promise. And then uh, the last thing I, I want to look at this morning is this, is this parable of the fig tree in verse 32. He says, I want you to learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. Are you with me? Like, you go outside right now and you can begin to see these trees begin to bud, right? My backyard is full of trees and you can see through them right now. In about two weeks, you won't be able to see through the trees because they will have leaves on them. It's a beautiful reminder every year. The promise that God made. He said this. He said, learn this lesson from the fig tree. The fig tree, too, was also very representative throughout the scripture of Israel as a whole. He says, as soon as its branch becomes tender and sprout leaves, you know the summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near and at the door. All these things that I just told you guys, when these things begin to happen, you're going to be able to see it. You're going to be able to see that the end is near. And it's the beginning of the end. He says, truly I tell you, the gen this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You see, I truly believe that the beginning of these signs that we've talked about indicate that the Lord is near. I really do. I believe that. I think about Paul all the time and how passionate he was about telling the Gentiles that Jesus is the Messiah. That not only is he the Messiah, but he's your Savior. He will save you from all sin. And he was absolutely passionate about it. Why was he so passionate about it? Because I believe that he thought Jesus was coming back right then. Yet, we go through our lives every day worrying about our stuff, worrying about our families, worrying about what we've got to get done, never realizing that the trees are budding leaves. And I believe the end is near. 
I pray that the end is near. I'm ready for the end to come. I'm ready to hang out in eternity with my Father. I'm, I'm excited about the end. And it's because of that, if we truly know that the end is near, your whole faith takes another aspect. If not, we're just buying our time here on earth, right? Two different aspects. I believe that our generation is seeing the foreshadowing of these signs that Jesus talks about right here. And look, I'm not looking for signs. I'm looking for my Savior. That's what I'm looking for. I'm going to keep focusing on Him, keep talking about Him, keep teaching about Him, and pray that He continues to to fill me with passion for Him. Not the signs. I'm not going to worry about all the stuff. I see it. It's an indicator. The deal is keep your eyes on Jesus. Father, I pray that um, we try to make sense of your words. And the truth is, is we really don't know what it's going to end up like. But I believe with your spirit, we can see signs of your promises and how they will be fulfilled. How you will do great things among your people. How you love us, how you care for us, even in the midst of all the chaos that's going on in this world. Just thanks for your spirit. Your spirit that lives in us. That walks with us on a daily basis. That teaches us. That loves us. That cares for us. That holds us. That tells us it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I trust this. And I believe this. In Jesus name. Amen.